Good morning. We are still pushing through the book of 1 Corinthians, so if you have your Bibles with you, you can open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, and we'll begin in verse 26 today. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. I want to read that text to you, and we'll push to the end of the chapter all the way through verse 40, and then we'll dive into the content of these verses. Grace Church, hear the word of the Lord. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. If anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are subject, excuse me, but are to subject themselves just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Well, let me pray again for the preaching of God's word this morning as Rick just prayed, Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes, that we may see wonderful things in your word. And Father, we pray for the gospel this morning, that the gospel would come not simply with words, that's what man can do, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'll be honest, um, I think the other pastors conspired to give me this text this morning. I may be wrong, but I think they conspired to give me this text. And the reason I, I think that is because this is one of those texts that, in all truthfulness, God speaks very plainly, and he's clear, as he always is with us, but the society that we live in certainly would 
make this a hot button uh, that uh, they would love to rage against, and indeed I've seen that very thing take place. Um, but I have all the confidence in the world that the verses that I just read are for the good of the church, and it's God's good design for his church. Let's begin by looking at verse 26. He says, what is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble? Each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. To frame today's text accurately, we must first establish two realities that I believe the text, again, makes plain. Paul is addressing believers, the saints, the church. That's why he says brethren. But he's also speaking in particular about their regular corporate gatherings, which is obviously applicable to us as we gather weekly, Sunday after Sunday. That's why he says, when you assemble, it was expected. They had done it. Paul had been with these people, these followers of Christ in Corinth, so he knew their routine. And Paul's now wanting to apply, I believe, all the truth and instruction that he's given from chapter 11 to chapter 14. So if we can think back to chapter 11 and kind of push through in our mind the text, instructions concerning gender roles in the life of the church, head coverings, participating in the Lord's Supper, the use of spiritual gifts, all while the saints of God are assembled together. So he's given us several chapters of instruction of what does it look like when we gather together? We've been marching through that over the last several weeks. And here we are. And Paul rhetorically asks, what is the outcome? How do we apply this? Is what he's, he's asking. How is this applied, saints? And for at least the previous three chapters, Paul is saying that the outcome when you gather together should be that you love one another. That you have a 1 Corinthians 13 love for one another. And that the edification of the saints should be a goal. And this week, today's text, I believe that we'll see that those two things, love for one another, edification of the saints, should be done in an orderly way. I believe that these three things, love for one another, edification of the saints, and those being done in an orderly way, I believe that these three things not only must, but indeed will work together during the corporate gathering. And by that I mean, I don't think there's any conflict between those three goals. I think they fit nicely together. And in all the boasted wisdom of the Corinthians, which we've seen in previous chapters, they miss some very important factors to the Christian life that I think exposed the error of their hearts. They were man-centered in their worship rather than God-centered. Well, I've visited a few churches over the years and I've never heard a pastor or someone who has had a platform opportunity stand in front of the congregation they're in front of and say, we just want you to know, in this church, we are man-centered. We're man-centered in our worship. Every church would say that they're God-centered. 
Every church would say that they're God-centered in their worship. But what does that really mean? Regrettably, the assembling of saints had shifted from being, in in Corinth, had shifted from being God-focused. There was an absence of real love for one another. There was an absence of uh, edification and order. And quickly, things spiraled out of control, and it became more about spiritual gifts and who had them and who was seen or heard publicly using them. And it became about the glorification of individuals rather than God. And so, though any church would stand and say that their worship, their gathering is God-centered, the reality is that's not always the case. And the gathering of this young church in Corinth had become a noisy, confusing competition of spirituality that had little to do with Christ. Now, before we wag our fingers and shake our heads at this gathering of believers, let's be honest about a very serious reality. It is precisely reasons such as the mess that we see in the church of Corinth. As we just push through this book, the reason that it's been so good, I don't know if I I stand alone in thinking that this series through through the book of 1 Corinthians has been massively beneficial, not only for my soul, but I believe for the life of this church. Well, the reason that that's the case is because much like the church in Corinth, we're a mess. We're a mess, and we're a mess together. And I think one of the primary reasons God calls us to gather together as saints on a regular basis is so that we, as saints, can be confronted by Christ and have our chaotic mess cleaned up. The church in Corinth was indeed a mess. But to see... Paul's letter from chapter 1 to to date to see his loving instruction to the saints from afar to see how Paul very firmly yet at the same time gently rebukes, corrects and points this church in the right direction is beautiful to consider how God may have refine the believers there is even sweeter just imagining what this letter may have done to the saints in Corinth how it probably initially wounded them and there was maybe even offense and hurt shame but then to realize Paul loves us he's speaking truth this is God's good grace to us that we would hear this word and repent, turn, and refocus our attention on Christ, our Savior, rather than ourselves. The sinfulness and the selfishness of the people in Corinth, it's easy to trace throughout the letter that Paul has written. But they were still, I believe, in a good position so long as they continued to gather together, submitting themselves to the authority of God, His order, his structure, his people, his bride, his church. See, apart from the local assembling of the saints, your errors, and there will be errors, will go unaddressed. And the opportunity to experience the corrective, grace-filled love of God dissipates. 
and the opportunity to experience the real edification of the, listen to this, saints, the brethren, not a brother, but the brethren, disappears. And the opportunity to joyously submit to the gracious order and design and purpose of God for us will be minimal to non-existent. The church is one of God's primary means to sanctify you as an individual. They did not forsake the assembling of the saints as some were in the habit of doing according to Hebrews 10.25. Nope, they were present, warts and all. Giant human mess, struggling to do life together, but listen to this, but reaping the full benefit of the mess that is called his bride. No church is perfect. It's full of imperfect people. If you've gone through our membership class, you've probably heard something similar to that stated to you before. And we would readily admit that that's true of us. But we always assemble together because the God of the true church is perfect. God is perfect and worthy of our obedience, including our obedience to assemble together. So despite all that they were getting wrong, they continued to assemble and work with others who were willing to identify with Christ and submit themselves to God's authority. So let's look again at verse 26. What is the outcome then, brethren, when you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. And then listen to that last phrase. Let all things be done for edification. Paul then addresses... I believe, the gifts that were either being used improperly or out of order. And he lists four of those there. Psalm, music, singing, teaching, prophecy and revelation, and tongues and interpretation. And though this list is not exhaustive of spiritual gifts or even things that take place in our gathering, these are all good gifts to be used in the life of the congregation for the glory of God and the good of the saints. Another way to say that would be that these gifts are given to the church for our edification, our mutual edification, which brings us really to our first point this morning. There's three things that I want us to see as we really begin to dig into the text. One is the edification of Christians, the edification of Christians. The second will be the elimination of confusion, and the third will be the enjoyment of complementarianism. And I want to hit on all those. First, let's look at the edification of Christians. He says, let all things be done for edification. Well, he, he's clear. The point is, God intends for his church to be edified, to be sanctified, to be made more like him. The very clear aim is that everything done in the church should be done for the edification of the church. And if the aim of all that is done within our gathering together, for us it is this Sunday morning worship service, is the edification of the saints, no spiritual gift or person using the gift should be highlighted above, before, over the God of glory. Yes, gifts exist. Yes, they're given to individuals. Yes, those individuals should use their gifts in the life of the church. 
But that should never, and quite honestly will never, in reality, overshadow our God. It's the clearest takeaway of our gatherings is not Jesus. If, it, if when we walk out of this place, we're not enamored, impressed with Christ, then we've missed the point of our gathering. Nothing within the service should rob God of his glory. And let's be clear, no man can really rob God of his glory. We can attempt to. We can distract. We can possibly cause others to not see the glory of God because we put the focus on ourself in some way. But the reality is no man can rob God of his glory. And though we would never explicitly say that we're ever guilty of that, all too often and way too easily, we can become self-centered glory seekers. We're capable. Not only capable, but that's how we're naturally bent. Our worship gatherings can quickly become about us, our preferences, our gifts, our desires, and we cease considering God. Even our motives can distract from Christ. Attempting to attract those outside the church, perhaps, would distract from Christ. Creating an atmosphere that is hardly Godward by removing God as the primary audience. Suddenly it becomes about who we're trying to attract rather than the great attraction, which is God himself. Our gatherings are not about your preferences, but are rather about your edification and God's glory. Actions take Actions taken within the weekly gathering may appear to be spiritual, but often our motives are rooted in selfishness, which is, quite honestly, a stench to God, and most certainly not edifying to the saints. The main thrust emphasized by Paul in the church, excuse me, to the church in Corinth is that they should gather and function in an orderly way that honors the Lord and edifies the saints. Paul wants to eliminate all the distractions, any confusion that may be taking place when they're gathered together. And to accomplish this goal, God commands that we all consider one another, that we limit our voice, that we be patient with one another, that we operate within his commanded order, that we function within our God-given roles and do all this in love and for the edification of others. The second thing I said that we wanted to look at is the elimination of confusion. Look with me in verse 27. It says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of prophets are, are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. Well, there's... Two sets of instructions given to us in these verses. The proper use of tongues and interpretation and the proper use of the gift of prophecy or revelation and the judgment or testing of that prophecy. 
So the first thing that we want to look at in these instructions to eliminate confusion is tongues, the, the taming of tongues. By tongues, I believe the text means the supernatural ability to communicate in a language outside your normal language. This seems consistent with other occurrences in the New Testament, particularly the day of Pentecost. Regarding those tongues, we are told that no more than three should speak. And when they speak, it should be done one at a time. Well, you can imagine the lack of love amidst the people if this was happening more than one at a time. I don't know about you, but if you've ever been in a, um, a foreign airport or a foreign country and you start hearing more than one language being spoken around you, it's total chaos. It's confusion. You can't, you can't understand what's going on. You feel lost. I believe that's what was taking place in the church in Corinth. It's what Paul was talking about in chapter 13. That's that clanging cymbal sound. It would, it would be miserable to hear all that noise with no understanding. And for some reason, as this gift was being exercised, they were talking on top of one another, interrupting one another. There's just a total exposing of their selfishness. As a parent, I'm sure you've experienced something like this before. It, it happened to me this morning. You're in conversation with somebody, and the next thing you know, somebody's tugging at your shirt, saying, Daddy, 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 or Mama, 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 Mama. And then they begin to ask you a question, and you're in conversation. You have to stop the conversation that was obviously important enough for you to be having to turn and say, wait a minute, wait your turn. I do want to hear what you have to say, but I'm talking to mom. I'm talking to dad. I'm talking to so-and-so, right? We've had that experience as a parent. The same way that we would instruct our children to wait for someone to finish speaking before they so rudely interrupt was Paul's instruction to the saints in Corinth. It, it seems so elementary. It seems so childish. In addition to that, some would speak in a language where there was no interpreter. And it's only common sense that the, for the gift of tongues to be used, there had to be an interpreter. And in, in, excuse me, an incomprehensible word would provide no edification for her hearers. Remaining silent was more edifying than to speak when it wasn't your time or place. Think about that. Remaining silent would be more edifying for the body than to speak in this manner. This warning is the first of three warnings in today's text where Paul tells the group that he's speaking to to remain silent. This is his way to eliminate confusion. God gives a framework for the use of the gift of tongues. If any, individual, excuse me, if any individual can't operate within God's appointed order for the edification of other Christians, he or she should remain silent. Well, the second set of instructions is for prophecy. We not only want to tame the tongue, but we want to be prudent in our prophecy. It says, let two or three prophets speak and let others pass judgment. By prophecy, I believe the text means the gift of being given a spontaneous revelation that is 
biblically accurate and in keeping with God's character and the gospel. I do believe that God can give these revelations to his teachers before they stand to preach, but I also believe he can give them to his teachers in the moment of teaching. The gift of prophecy has a similar instruction to the gift of tongues. There's a limitation that he puts on it. He says two or three, right? And then he says in verse 30, but if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Did you catch verse 30? If a revelation is made to another, so somebody's communicating a revelation that God has given, and while they're speaking, a revelation is given to someone else who is seated, the first one must keep silent. And he says, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. Well, the limitation, not only on how many, but preferably, he says two or three, but then he says this, one at a time, but rather than, like he said with tongues, somebody's communicating in a tongue, he says, wait until they finish before you go. But with prophecy, he says, stop going so the next person can go. I do find it instructive with tongues that we're told to wait, and with prophecy, we're told to be silent so the next person can have a word. Perhaps both are good instructions for us in our time of corporate prayer, to be patient so as not to think that your prayer is more important than someone else's, and to be brief when you do pray, allowing time for others to pray so as not to think that your speaking is more important than others. It does seem in both cases that we are instructed to consider others in our speaking. However, there is some additional explanation given by Paul concerning the prophecies. He says in verse 32, And the spirits of the prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. All prophecies uttered in the assembly of the saints should be judged by the congregation and judged according to God's word. We know in 1 John chapter 4 and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the whole church is called to test the prophecies, to test the prophets, to see if they're true or false. We should always be like the Bereans who would go and examine the text to see if what they had heard was true, to weigh the words of what has been taught in the life of the church. And hold fast to what is good. For what it's worth, consistently the elders are examining the preaching of Grace Church. Grace Church is also structured week after week with a specific liturgy in mind. We believe our corporate gathering ought to be ordered around a gospel liturgy with Christ at the center of what we say and do. And by this, we believe that God is glorified and the saints edified. Well, I've heard pushback as uh, I've explained that to people before. I've gotten pushback uh, over what we believe to be a well-planned liturgical order of worship because the argument is if you've done all that planning and preparation and you just have everything just like it's supposed to be, well, then the argument is you've allowed no room for the Spirit to spontaneously work. But I would say in response to that, really two things. I'm confident that if God chooses to manifest himself among us today or any other day that we gather, we would 
care very little about our planned order of things. If God shows up, our plan's not greater than that. And I don't think there's a single person in this room that would want to step in the way of God's manifest presence. But the second thing is, I'm also confident that the same God who can spontaneously move among his people through the Holy Spirit, by that same Spirit, can help us plan and prepare our gatherings in an orderly way that brings him honor. The bottom line is, I pray for revival. And I not only welcome a mighty work of the Spirit, but I long for it. And how God chooses to bring that about is the plan that I don't want any part of. I just want to trust that when God does it, he'll do it. I love the way Thomas Schreiner says it on this subject. He says, vibrancy and order are not enemies, but friends. Too often those begging for the freedom to speak as the Spirit leads are really wanting to say whatever it is they would like to say outside of God's order. Those who would push for no rain on what they would like to say. We know that God is not a God of confusion. God speaks clearly to his people. We know his voice. I love this verse. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. God brings peace to his people, never confusion, right? It seems like there was a lot of confusion around the cross of Jesus Christ. The night before, as the the horde comes out to arrest Jesus, Jesus speaks and says, I am he, and all that came out to arrest him fall out. Peter is a part of this confrontation and takes a swipe at another man's face, catches his ear. Jesus puts it back on. It's total confusion. He's ripped away from Judas's betraying kiss and carried off to not a real court, but a kangaroo court in the middle of the night and is put on trial for something he doesn't do and is ultimately crucified on a cross in place of one of the most vile sinners of their day. It's total confusion at first glance. But if you can take the step back and see God's greater view, he's in full control. This is his sovereign plan. There's no confusion at all. Quite honestly, Christ has come to provide peace for his people in one of the most chaotic pictures that we have in all of Scripture. Jesus Christ was willingly, submissively, humbly being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's the gospel. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when he's crucified, his blood is shed, and the lack of peace that we had in our relationship with God suddenly has a way to be restored. If we'll put our faith in that person, Jesus Christ, and him crucified, the peace which we long for can be found. This is God. This is our God who provides peace for his people. He doesn't contradict himself. His word is always true. And all who utter a prophecy in his name should be tested according to the word of God by the saints of God. To eliminate confusion, God gives a framework of instruction and order for the use of the gift of prophecy. And ultimately, 
when functioning properly, brings about peace to God's people, not confusion. So there's the edification of the Christians, which is the aim, and we see the elimination of confusion through Paul's instructions. But thirdly, I want you to see the enjoyment of complementarianism. 1 Corinthians 14.34 The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. Well, for the third time in our text today, there's instruction to be silent. This silence is instructed of the woman in the gathering. The words used here, listen to the language again, not permitted, but are to subject themselves. What could Paul possibly mean by this? And more importantly, what is God's intent in these instructions? We certainly want to dig and try to really unearth what is Paul communicating here. I know that we've all gone to this text at one time or another and thought, does that really mean that? What, what is meant in the text here? But I think the greater question is, what is God's intent by what's communicated? And I'll be honest. This is why I said at the beginning of the sermon, I may have been set up because this is a hard text to grapple with. Not because I'm afraid of it. That's not, that's not it. But because faithful men throughout history have wrestled with what Paul possibly meant in these words. Does Paul mean complete and utter silence? No exceptions? No conditions? Or is this only referring to silence when it comes to tongues and prophecies, which he's in the midst of giving instructions for? Or is this only the judgment of prophecies? Or are they being forbid to ask questions, as he states a little bit later in the text, that they're to go home and ask the questions to their husband? These are all interpretations that I've read this week in a host of commentaries, again, of good, faithful men. Well, let me play my cards for everybody's sake. I do not believe this means complete and utter silence because 1 Corinthians 11, which was preached a few weeks ago, speaks of women prophesying and praying in the gathering. And I believe that we have demonstrated here at Grace Church within our weekly assembling together that our women pray aloud. They read scripture. They help lead music. Perhaps you've seen one of our ladies here in the front giving testimony or a report on missions. So we obviously don't mean complete and utter silence, or at least we don't believe that here at Grace. Women at Grace Church have been invited into elder meetings from time to time to give us added wisdom, the wisdom of a woman in certain care matters. We've welcomed that. We've needed that. But with all that being said, I do believe without knowing exactly what Paul is requiring, that silence here is a principle that is in keeping with a broader view of Scripture and in particular in keeping with the point of this chapter. And that is, God has a clear authoritative structure that should be adhered to by his saints. I do believe that God has forbidden women from usurping the roles of men, especially in the home and the church. 
according to 1 Timothy 2.12, which is another text that would certainly hit up on this subject, a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. And I believe that any act or speech on the part of a woman which sets aside her subjection to man is what God is forbidding. And the text considers it a violation of the law. That's what it says in verse 34. And by law, you can't go back in the Old Testament and find a verse that says women are not to speak in the public gatherings. But I believe Paul is referring to the creation order, which is found in Genesis, which is referred to as part of the Old Testament law. I do believe our brother Jim, several weeks ago as he preached on chapter 11, did a tremendous job in his preaching of 1 Corinthians uh, concerning head coverings and laid for us a solid foundation for our understanding of the roles of women in the life of this church. He, he not only gave us a theological picture, but he took us back to creation and walked us through God's order, which is certainly what I believe Paul is now in chapter 14 hearkening back to. First Corinthians chapter 11, 7 through 13, takes us to that creation account. Back in Genesis chapter 2 and 3, to give us an understanding of God's created order. And as a result, from what we see in Genesis and our Pauline theology, that men are to be leaders both in the home and in the church. And the reason I say that is because God created Adam first. That's the argument that's used in the New Testament. Woman was creative out of man to be man's helper. God gave life instructions to Adam, including not to take of the tree of knowledge. He gave man the right to name woman. When Satan did tempt and deceive, he subverted male leadership by approaching Eve. And God approached Adam once they had sinned because he was head over the woman. All that we find in Genesis 2 and 3. All this truth is used throughout the New Testament. Paul just keeps going back, keeps going back to the Genesis account to establish God's roles for men and women. God's particular order is intentional and is established, designed, listen to this, is unchanging. You can't change it. And in the next two verses, Paul seems to continue what I believe is his rebuke in, for the church of Corinth. To do so, I think he does, he, he adds to what he says in verse 34. He says, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home. For it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And then he goes into the rhetorical questions that they wouldn't have a good answer for. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth? Well, we all know the answer to that question. It wasn't. And has it come to you only? Well, we know the answer to that question. It hasn't. So whether we understand or agree with God's order and design is irrelevant within God's kingdom. You may push against this reality because you believe it's wrong, unfair, oppressive, or demeaning, but it still doesn't change the reality. Today, we're facing a detrimental movement within our society that wants to subvert the roles of men, change the roles of women, 
It goes by the name of feminism. Feminism is not a fight for equality. It's a fight for authority. It is the desire of at least those women to be in an authority over others. Feminism is not a new fight. It's age old. It's been around since Genesis chapter 3. Verse 16 says of that chapter, yet you, excuse me, yet your desire will be for your husband. That's not a good desire. That desire that's referred to in Genesis chapter 3 is for his position, is for his place. But they're reminded, he will rule over you. Since Genesis 3, woman has been wrestling with the urge to supplant man's God-given authority. So Paul warns the women in Corinth not to step outside the origin of God's order or to suggest that they understand God's word in a way that hasn't been understood before. Simply put, men are to lead and God has called women to help them. Listen to me. Male leadership is lacking when there's not women helping. That's a reality that we see in Scripture. And when men are lacking, the answer to the problem is not to take their place, but to help. Praise God for the many women that I've seen do just that, help. As a church, we should certainly fight to maintain the God-given equality of men and women. And we should war against, listen to this, the abusiveness that takes place from men to women. I think we have a track record of that. But we should never cave to our secular society's demand for our men to passively step back and let women take the leading role this is not the role of men and it's not the role of women some of the young men among the congregation this morning will have heard this before because a good brother of ours um, pushed this into a basketball team's mind but this is what he says about men he says men are to reject passivity accept responsibility, lead courageously, and invest eternally. And he had those players repeat that at every single one of his practices because he was trying to teach them how to be men. It's what men do. And the coinciding reality is women flourish when men flourish and vice versa. When women flourish, men flourish. Women flourish in their God-given role as helper. When we step outside of our God-given roles, we begin to falter and listen to this and lose joy. If you're struggling with embracing God's role for you as a man or as a woman, I hope that you will ask God to reveal to you through his word how you might joyfully embrace his God-given role for you. The way we describe our roles as men and women in marriage and in life, in the life of the church, is with a word called complementarianism. Complementarianism comes from the word complementary, right? Not like a complimentary breakfast that you might get at Hampton Inn, but complementary as in where we enhance the qualities of one another by being together. I pray that's the case of every marriage in this room. 
that when husband and wife are together, that they are made better. They're enhanced. In complementarianism, men are expected to fulfill their God-given role, to lead, protect, provide, and teach. But women, do not miss out on your role as helper. Do not under, excuse me, do not underestimate for a second your role in making the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ known to those around you. I challenge you to see a biblical survey of beautiful womanhood according to God's design in the scriptures. Do not believe the lies of this world or some people's distortion even within the church of the Bible and what it teaches about womanhood. Your womanhood is a prize to God and you are to be praised for fulfilling your role. Fear God, trust his words, follow his ways and not the ways of the world. I love Proverbs 31.25. I went back and just read through that account in preparation for today's sermon and one verse stood out. Proverbs 31.25 says this, strength and dignity are her clothing. And listen to the second half of this. And she smiles at the future. I love that verse. A woman who has full confidence in her God. Not anybody or anything else. And she smiles at the future because there's no fear in her. She's not afraid. All her hope is wrapped up in Christ and God. And she's not afraid. She's not afraid of who God has called her to be. That's why I named the third point the enjoyment of complementarianism because when we submit to God's order and we seek to honor him in the way that we fulfill that role, we taste true joy. True joy is not found in warring against God's order, but humbly submitting to it and flourishing in it because God has a way that we, we may not quite understand. Between the use of tongues, the gift of prophecy, and the complementarian role of men and women, God's order is best not what we think. We're so tempted to step outside of God's order. We're so tempted to go our own way or to second guess. But what we should do is embrace God's order, not only because it's best for us and edifying, but it's required. And if there's no order in the church, listen to this. You may not be excited about all those things that God's word communicates, but if there's no order in the church, the least pleased person is God. Well, let's finish the text with a piece of application, and this is where I conclude. Verse 37 says, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not, he is not recognized. Verse 39, Therefore, my brethren, Desire earnestly to prophesy and do not forbid to speak in tongues. Verse 40, here's our application. But all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. Here's application. Here's application from those, those four verses. God demands, listen to this, obedience. God demands it. 
And I believe our application is not only to obey, but to trust and obey. To trust what we may not fully comprehend and obey anyway. It's not unquestioned obedience, but it's a trusting in the God who has called us to obey. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would help us, that you would help us be the kind of people to be the kind of church that desires the edification of others. And Father, I pray that you would not let us participate in ideas, thoughts, or actions that would lead to confusion, but that we would fix our eyes on Christ who is our peace. And Father, I pray that we would joyfully embrace our God-given roles, and that we would function as a church in an orderly manner that honors you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.